Navy Federal's proud to serve more than 8 million members and is open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits like a credit card APR average that's 4% lower than the industry's, member-only exclusive rates, and more. Visit NavyFederal.org MOB for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app today. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Let's change up the way you watch baseball. Introducing Change Up, a brand new live whip around show across the league, brought to you by MLB and DAZN. Jump in and out of the best plays as they happen and get expert analysis from hosts who bring a fresh personality and new perspective to the game. It's on every night and available on nearly any device, smart TVs, tablet, mobile, and gaming consoles. Getting set up with DAZN is easy. Just download the DAZN app in the Apple or Android app store, sign up by creating an account, and then start watching across any device. That's DAZN, D-A-Z-N. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman. I am a staff writer at The Ringer. I just wanted to draw your attention to a couple things on The Ringer's baseball coverage. Zach Cram wrote about the surprising twins and their best record in baseball. I wrote about this podcast's favorite player, uh, rookie Padres right-hander Chris Paddock. And my man Danny the Dinger Machine Heifetz uh, jumps on the the website to try to explain why Christian Yelich hasn't cooled off yet. Uh, You can also find Ben Lindbergh's exploration of the surge in home run robberies uh, and We'll talk about that, uh, Ben and I, later on the show. Uh, But first, as always, we go to Zach. So a couple weeks ago on the pod, uh, Ben Lindbergh and I devoted several minutes to talking about a phenomenon called the ass. And today I'm going to talk to uh, Zach Cram about a human being who goes by Mad Bum. Uh, We're bringing this whole thing together. Zach Cram, Madison Bumgarner has submitted his eight-team no-trade clause um, submissions, according to Ken Rosenthal, uh, and we're going to talk about this, you and I. Yeah, the eight teams, according to Ken Rosenthal, are the Braves, Red Sox, Cubs, Astros, Brewers, Yankees, Phillies, and Cardinals. So you look at those eight teams, and what do they have in common? They're all at least potential contenders or likely contenders. I think the immediate reaction that some people had was, wow, Madison Bumgarner doesn't want to go play for a contender. That's obviously not what this is about. Yeah, let's not uh, let's that stance is silly enough that we probably should just gloss over it. But I do want to spend a minute on it because like there are there are baseball players who have the reputation for like not having, quote unquote, the will to win. And I can't imagine a less convincing person to make that argument about than Madison Bumgarner. Noted uh, postseason coward Madison Bumgarner, who, you know, never came in in relief in Game 7 of the World Series and pitched five innings. I think a lot of that reputation was built up, and and rightfully so, uh, in that 2014 World Series where he, he pitched like half of the Giants innings um, and allowed, what, uh, six earned runs the entire postseason. But he had a relief appearance in uh, after a start in the 2010 uh, NLCS when uh, he was just a 20-year-old rookie. Like, this is, he is the the definitive postseason pitcher uh, of our generation, I think. So let's, I was going to touch on this later, but this feels like a good time to bring it up. Um, when we're talking about Madison Bumgarner, we're going to deconstruct what his value might be at this point in his career. How much stock do you put in the quote-unquote playoff magic? 
I don't know. I think this is where analytics kind of has a, a touchy area. Like if you were going into a postseason start tomorrow, would you want to have Madison Bumgarner or Clayton Kershaw? I think Kershaw is a better pitcher, but Bumgarner has the playoff success that Kershaw has typically not experienced. And how much stake do you put in that? I don't know. I also think that depending on where a team that might want to trade for him is in the standings, that could be an additional bonus. Like, I don't think Houston, for instance, is necessarily going to need a starting pitcher, given all the minor league depth they have and the bullpen depth. But let's say a team like Houston that's already ahead by a decent amount in the division and ends up thinking like, we don't need to worry about the last two months of the regular season. We only need to worry about October. I wonder if that comes into play a little bit more there than for a team that's like, oh, we're two games back of the wild card. Maybe we should trade for someone. Maybe not. Yeah, I think there's something to it. I, you know, I don't want to go so far as to say that that there is such a, a thing as a clutch gene, but I think there we can, you know, draw in, you know, draw inferences from from past performance that certain players react better to to pressure than others. And I, I think the way this gets talked about most of the time is kind of a it's a reactive and really uncharitable way to to look at it because you know athletes fail in sm- in small playoff samples all the time for a variety of reasons uh some of which we never learn about as the public um and so i think it's i don't detract from players who who don't come up big in the in the postseason because as we've learned from guys like alex rodriguez or barry bonds players who have this kind of reputation have it until they don't and sometimes they they flip out and are the best player in in a post you know in a run of the World Series. You know this happens, um, but there are so, you know I, I think that that in any group of people there are some who get really get up for high pressure moments, and I think you know you don't get to become a major league player or certainly not a good major league player if you can't handle pressure on some level. But uh, Bumgarner's been he's stepped up his game in the playoffs enough that I you know I don't know if that's the the difference between me going out and getting him versus, I don't know, Gio Gonzalez isn't quite the same kind of pitcher, but you know what I mean. Like somebody who who has a similar regular season resume, but um, doesn't have that spectacular track record. Um, I will say that, you know, the 2014 World Series is five years in the past now. So this is, I think, the, the most interesting part of any Madison Bumgarner trade uh, speculation is you look at his performance, I think as a as a pitcher overall, that postseason performance caused him to be a little bit overrated. Um, but over the past three years, you know, he's been he's been good, not as good as he was was at his peak. He's had a couple freak injuries that caused him to miss half of 2017 and half of 2018. Um, you know, what do you make of of Bumgarner as like the total package now? Yeah, I should amend perhaps my previous statement about a team that might only be fighting for a wild card, not being as invested in him. If you want someone to pitch in a one-game playoff, maybe Bumgarner's your man. He's appeared in two wildcard games and thrown a complete game shutout each time. But like you said, those were several seasons ago, several injuries ago. I have been encouraged by Bumgarner's start to the season. I was pretty worried about him after the end of last year because it wasn't just the injuries. It was the fact that his strikeout rate was way down. His walk rate was up. He was succeeding still if you look at metrics like era but a lot of his underlying indicators were trending in the wrong direction he's perked back up a bit this year though his strikeout rate was only 20 percent last year it's up to 25 now his walk rate has been cut by more than half he has 
tied for the second best walk rate among all qualified starters right now. And he, it's not like he's lost any velocity or changed his pitch mix or anything. He's just pitching better with what he's always done. So I think he's a better pitcher now than he was last season. And that's good news for teams that might want to trade for him. Yeah. And the other thing I would say, if you're looking at him down the stretch, if, if you're a team that's chasing a wild card spotter in that, um, in that mix, I think the, the public perception of Bumgarner as like the spectacular one game playoff stopper is actually, it's not the thing I like about him. The thing I like about him is that if he's not falling off his quad bike or, uh, you know, getting his hand broken by a line drive, he's going to give you seven innings, you know, seven decent innings every five days. And just that's a, a quality that's almost, I think, rarer than the ability to really go out and shove for five innings and 80 pitches. Um, if everything's working for you in a high pressure scenario, like we've seen all manner of pitchers be able to do that in the postseason um, over the the past few years. But guys who can really just, you know, that you're going to have a chance to win when he's on the mound. He's a, he's a really steady hand on the, on the wheel. And from his perspective, I think we are certainly of the same mindset here that good on him for potentially exercising his no trade clause. There's a reason all oh, right, those, we never said why he yeah. he uh, he uh, submitted this list. So yeah, yeah there's let's a do reason that. that these clauses are negotiated. So from his perspective, he knows that the Giants aren't going anywhere this year, and he's going to be a free agent after the season. So they almost certainly have an incentive to trade him. So for him, you know, if t- San Francisco could trade him to the Yankees or could trade him to the Cubs, maybe if there are multiple options, this allows him to pick and choose which team, which city he wants to join, and that's not a bad thing for a player to be able to have. Jonathan Lucroy exercised mm-hmm. that a couple of seasons ago. Giancarlo Stanton exercised Cole that. Cole Hamels did too. Cole Hamels. So there are, I think, I'm not sure if it's just because I'm paying attention to it more or if it's actually happening more often, but there's a reason that players should have this power. And I think Bumgarner will still probably end up going to one of these teams. This just affords him the freedom to choose which one if there are multiple scenarios at, at right. hand. And to, to choose not only the the situation that he wants to go to, the team he wants to play for, but maybe have, you know, this was Lucor's thing. Um, he, I think the the rub with him turning down the trade to Cleveland was they didn't promise not to pick up his player option, uh, which had had him, this was when Lucor was one of the best catchers in baseball and was being paid uh, like a, a middle reliever. And if he had managed to hit free agency a year earlier, uh, that probably would have been worth something like ninety million dollars to him, and uh, you know, I it's he went to to Texas anyway, and ended up uh, not having any control over that. But it's worth a shot. So, you know, I like the the Bumgarner. You know, this does feel like you said the Astros might not be in the market for a pitcher, but these are these are other teams that have a need and are going to have are going to be in it down to the to the uh, very end of the season. You think it, you know, how much could the Red Sox use just another reliable starting pitcher or the Phillies use another one more reliable starting pitcher? The Brewers, every team on this list almost, uh, you could imagine them being in a position in June or July where Bumgarner is, you know, the difference between them making the playoffs and not. And it's maybe a little bit too early to start thinking about this. We usually don't see big name midseason trades until at least after the draft, which is in early June. But there aren't that many 
reliable starting pitchers who could be available this summer. There aren't that many of, reliable starting pitchers, well, period. Yeah, yes, this, I and, mean, that was the, the point I was making a couple minutes ago. And a lot of them have already filtered onto the good teams. So it's not like the Orioles are going to have any starting pitchers anyone wants. Maybe like Caleb Smith from the Marlins, but he has a few years left on his contract. And then you're down into like Mike Miner from the Rangers, maybe. And I happen to like Mike Miner, but I don't think any fan base is going to be more excited about Mike Miner joining the team than Madison Bumgarner, which does bring up the question. If you were a team like the Twins, who I wrote about earlier this week, they had, at least when I wrote about them, the best record in baseball, but they could definitely use some rotation help. If you're Minnesota, would you rather get Bumgarner and trade the prospects who you'll need to trade for Bumgarner? Or would you rather just pay the money that it takes to sign Dallas Keuchel? I mean, you know where I stand on that. Um, I'd probably rather have Keuchel than Bumgarner as a pitcher, although I, you know, I'm that's I don't think that's a, a universal opinion. Um, there's room for disagreement on that. But I mean, if you're going to sign Dallas Keuchel, then you should have done it in the offseason. And that's, you know, I uh, it's just frustrating that, that they didn't take that that measure. Or, you know, if it's just money, you could do both. I can't imagine the Bumgarner is going to, you know, this close to free agency being who he is at this point in his career, who's reliable, but not you know, a top 10 pitcher in baseball, it's not going to take that much uh, to get him away from the Giants, particularly for a team like the Twins with a, you know, a farm system as deep as they have. So I don't think that's an exclusive thing uh, that you could, you have to do one or the other, but I don't know, for some reason, just Keuchel not having pitched this deep in the season feels risky to me at this point. You said that the cost for Bumgarner wouldn't be that high. And I tend to agree with you. I think Every summer now, we're like, wow, they got that rental for such a small price. But that's kind of where the sport is now, at least for non-elite relievers. I think like in 2016, when the Yankees brought back Glaber Torres for Araldis Chapman and Clint Frazier and Justice Sheffield for Andrew Miller, that was kind of an anomaly. And rental players at this point are not fetching the best prospects. Like the Dodgers brought back Hugh Darvish in a 2017 trade, and that was for Willie Calhoun, who's a decent prospect. And to lower guys, I imagine the price for Bumgarner would probably be similar. Yeah, and I i mean, Calhoun's a good prospect, but Bumgarner isn't as good now as Darvish was then. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, this is a, where, where would you like to see him go? Where do you think he's a good fit? I think even though Bumgarner isn't hitting like perhaps his reputation suggests he is, he still fits better in the National League. I just like having that possibility of him hitting. And I like seeing him in those games. I think Atlanta is maybe the best National League fit just because the Braves have so many young pitchers and young pitchers who aren't necessarily reliable. I've discussed that before on this podcast. It seems like they have a lot of number three, number four types. So they could use not only just a veteran who's been around, but someone, like you said, who's going to be stable in the rotation and eat up a lot of innings. I think that would make a lot of sense. Uh, and the Braves certainly have the prospects to give back without making too much of a dent in their farm system. Mm-hmm. I like, I don't know. I just like the idea of the Twins going all in. I think that's where I'd I'd put them. But you know, I think the Phillies are in a in a similar situation to the Braves. I think the Brewers are in a similar situation to the Twins. You could see him move, move into the Cardinals. I will say, like, there's part of me that's going to be sad to if he does end up moving. There's a part of me that's going to be sad to see him go because you know I'm. Obviously, all for free agency and free movement of players and stuff, but like there is something to him being an iconic 
member of those three championship Giants teams where it's going to it's going to feel weird uh, seeing him in a different uniform. I will say so guys, pitchers like that who get traded like the Verlander, the Verlander trade, I think wasn't as weird as it could have been because and this is going to sound very strange, but the Astros have the same colors as the Tigers away uniforms and the same with Hamels moving from the Phillies uh, to the Rangers to the Cubs. Like, I want to see Bumgarner in completely different colors, which I guess, like, we're almost guaranteed to because the, the Giants with the black and orange, unless they trade him to the Orioles, that's a, that's a near certainty. Bumgarner, just looking at the shape of his career, it's really interesting because he is only 29 years old this Shocking. season. Like, yeah. that's the same age as Zach Wheeler. That's the same age as Ross Stripling who are pitchers we think as up and coming and, oh, their best days might still be ahead of them. Bumgarner has had an entire career at this point. Obviously, that's because he came up so young, but he also came up on those Giants teams. So it wasn't just that he was a 20-year-old in the majors. It was that he was a 20-year-old on the biggest stages, and he would like had his iconic postseason run when he was just 24. So he still has... a long career ahead of him, I think the way he's bounced back this year makes me a lot more confident about how he's going to age. Obviously, that matters more for after the season when he's a free agent and hopefully isn't uh, left to wait like all the other 30-year-olds have been over the last few off-seasons. But it's just really interesting to look at that trajectory and think that he still has maybe some positive days ahead of him. Yeah, we'll see. Um, Yeah, I mean, Talk about accomplishing a lot really early in your career. That I, I mean, that iconic run to the that you talked about in 2014. You know, 24 years or 25 years old. He's one of those guys with a, a birthday that's close to the BRAF age cutoff. Um, 25 years old. That was his third ring, which is incredible. So anyway, it's going to be. Uh, I, I don't think a trade is imminent, but it's worth preparing ourselves for in advance because it's like I said, it's going to be weird to see him in a different uniform. Um, one guy we can count on being in the same place next week is Zach Cram. Thank you as always for joining me. Thank you. How often do you think about your socks? If you're like I used to be, not much, but I recently discovered socks that change the way I think about socks forever. They're called Bombas. Now, socks might ordinarily be just these semi-disposable, solid-colored rags to keep you from getting blisters under your shoes. Bombas are not that. These are fashionable, comfortable, long-lasting articles of clothing. They're the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. They're made of super soft, natural cotton, and every pair comes with arch support, a seamless toe, and a cushioned footbed that's comfy but not too thick. With many colors, patterns, lengths, and styles, Bombas look great in the gym, at the office, and out on the town. Bombas are what feet daydream about. Best of all, for every Bombas purchase you make, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. So buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash MLB today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash MLB for 20% off. Bombas.com slash MLB. Let's get something straight. Your teeth. Smile Direct Club straightens your teeth for 60% less embraces with invisible aligners sent directly to you. Simply go online and book a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or order an at-home impression kit. Then they'll email a preview of your new smile. And once you get your aligners, one of Smile Direct Club's duly licensed doctors will check in on your progress every 90 days. Visit SmileDirectClub.com for real before and after photos from some of the 550,000 plus satisfied grinners. 
and exclusive for our listeners. You can get $100 off your invisible aligners when you go to smiledirectclub.com slash podcast and use offer code MLB100. You'll also get a $25 Amazon gift card with a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or a $25 rebate on an at-home impression kit. That's $100 off at smiledirectclub.com slash podcast, offer code MLB100. SmileDirectClub.com slash podcast, offer code MLB100. All right, my guest today is uh, my good friend and the managing editor of Baseball Prospectus, Craig Goldstein. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, So... I asked you what interesting things have gone on in baseball, and you have written about one of them. Uh, uh, Alex Verdugo, the uh, uh, outfielder for the Los Angeles Dodgers, is doing uh, some pretty incredible things in terms of the combination of power and contact rate. Uh, So you've written about this with graphs and charts and so forth. uh, But why don't you give us a, a quick rundown of what he's doing and why it's so special? Yeah, it's just something I kind of ran into during a conversation I was having with uh, Dustin Palmatier, who's another writer. Um, and I was looking at some of the plate discipline stats that we have at Baseball Prospectus. They're also at Fangraphs. They're all over. And there's a stat called Z contact, which is the amount of times or, or, or the percentage that a hitter makes contact when they swing at a pitch that's in the strike zone. So it's a fairly granular stat, but it is indicative of how good a batter is at making contact at pitches that they should be making contact on. And Alex Verdugo rates near the top of the league uh, at just under 97% in Z contact rate. So what I did was, you know, I thought that was really interesting for a guy that's been able to thus far hit for some power. And I was curious how common that really was around the league. So I looked dating back to 2008. So the last 11 or 10 seasons and change, whatever we have in 2019 at kind of the guys who were the best at making contact in the strike zone. And uh, the list is a lot of guys that you might expect uh, guys. I would like, like to literally read this list on the air uh, be- because please. like you can say guys who make a lot of contact in the zone tend not to hit for power, but I think these names really drive <laughs> that home to an extent yeah. that just saying that uh, would not. So here's, here's the list. David Fletcher this year, uh, Ben Revere in 2014, Zach Granite in 2017, Aaron Miles in 2008, JB Shuck in 2016. I can't believe JB Shuck was playing in the majors that long. Uh, <laughs> Cesar is tourist in 2012, Ben Revere again in 2015, Eric Sogard, the face of baseball in 2015, Omar and Fonte 2011. There is no power. And then there's this list of players. Yeah. And so I put it in a table with uh, baseball prospectus is uh, deserved run created plus stat uh, where Verdugo topped the list. He's beating uh, David Fletcher, who's having a very nice year in 2019 this year uh, by one point and by everyone else by at least uh, 30 or so. And if you look at the slugging percentages, he's the only guy in uh, the 500s, uh, his isolated uh Power ISO uh, is the only guy in the 200s, and very few people are even in the 100s on this list. So Verdugo is seventh since 20 uh, since 2008, like I said, in Z contact rate, and he's the only one doing it, uh, hitting for any power. So the next thing I wanted to look at was uh, a list of guys who had this type of contact ability. I sent 
I set the threshold for a 94% Z contact rate. And I also filter for an ISO of 200 or more. So guys that were combining this ability to make a contact at a fairly elite rate in the zone and also hit for some power. Now, granted, Verdugo is uh, only, you know, a, a quarter or so of the way through the season. So this can obviously change. Uh, the rest of these guys are full seasons. But if you put it, put him in with, with the other list of players, there are only four other players who have done this. And uh, they are Albert Pujols in 2008, Rafael Fercal in 2008. I think people forget how good he was. He was also hurt a lot of that year. Um, 2011, Ian Kinsler, and 2016, Mookie Betts. And those are all, aside from Fercal, who was injured, I think those are all six wins or better in terms of, uh, of grading out over a full season. And Verdugo actually makes more contact than any of them in terms of his Z contact. So it's really remarkable. Yeah, so in that. what this boils down to is there's almost a contradiction in that if you have an approach and swing mechanics that allow you to make that much contact on pitches within the zone, you're doing other things that are going to rob you of power. So whether that's, you know, right. not selling out or, you know, uh, whether you're chasing pitches, that sort of thing, uh, it's very difficult. I mean, almost impossible to make this much contact and still hit the ball hard. I don't know. I guess what is a lot, what do you think is allowing Verdugo to do this? I mean, he's, he's got basically a preternatural ability to, to make contact. He's had that since he was drafted. And the question was always going to be um, whether he was going to hit for enough power with it. And, and the thing is that he does, he, he's always made hard contact. We at BP had an eyewitness account, which is essentially our version of like a, a scouting report that put a, a plus plus grade on his hit tool and said, you know, we have fringe average power here, but it's mostly because there's not a lot of loft in his swing, which allows him to keep his, his bat head in the hitting zone for a really, really long time. And the thing that's, that's happened over the last few years in baseball is there's been a lot of trade-off for some of these high contact guys to add some loft to their swing, to add some, you know, some to steepen the swing plane, which puts their bat in the hitting zone a shorter amount of time. And so the, that's why this combination is really hard to find because it's often a trade-off. So getting it together is really difficult. I think part of what that is, is, uh, you know, Turner Ward, who's the hitting coach for the Reds, but was previously with the Dodgers and, and has gotten some credit and, and worked with, uh, Justin Turner, among other people, uh, ha had, uh, the ability to, to help guys kind of swing up on the ball without trading off too much contact. I think that's something that Verdugo has done a little bit here. Uh, but Robert Van Skoyak, the, the current Dodgers hitting coach was someone who worked with JD Martinez to do this type of thing. And so, so he has that ability as well. And I also think, you know, we've done a lot of research and I'm sure uh, people have heard about this, but the the ball is different. You know, it's, it's back to kind of 2017 levels in terms of the drag uh, resistance and it's going further. And I think the type of profile that that's going to help are these players who make as much contact as someone like Verdugo does, or if you want to go back to, you know, the 2015 to, you know, second half 2015 to 2017 era ball, you're looking at the breakouts from, Jose Altuve or Jose Ramirez or guys like that who make a lot of contact but weren't necessarily thought of as major power guys all of a sudden hitting 25 and 30 home runs. And that's, I mean, that's something that really fascinates me. I know, and you mentioned uh, Jarrett Seidler's theory about this um, yep. in, in your article. That's something he talks about a lot um, is Absolutely. guys who have that hit, hit tool and essentially like trading a, a grade of hit tool for a trade for a grade of power and just the whole thing clicking. What's interesting to me is like 
the the body type well, this isn't the only interesting thing. There are 45 interesting things about this, but one of them is the body type of a lot of a lot of these hitters share, which is Verdugo is listed at six foot two ten, and it's just sort of a cubicle uh body type for him. Um and a lot yeah, of these well, players we call Max Monty the uh like the baseball square. He's you know, it's like the square guy. But yeah, and then he's someone who kind of has this too. He was not a power guy. Uh, Muncie, and then all of a sudden he was. And some of that is trading for power, but he's also good enough that he had contact to give up to make that trade. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the the short limbs, the shorter levers, you know, maybe these shorter squatter guys are are strong in other ways. Certainly you'd say that about Altuve or Mookie Betts. Um, mm-hmm. And these are the the players that are, you look at Ozzy Albies, for Call had that body type, Ian Kinsler to a certain extent. Uh, even Albert Pujols, I think, is, like, like he's the bigger version. Yeah, he's like Bill James talked about the body. talked about the uh, the Matt Stairs body type, and Kirby Puckett was one. Like like Pujols is gigantic, but he's also you look at the amount of him that is torso versus arms and legs. Like he's built like this, just in a six foot three frame instead of a five foot nine frame. Uh, like somebody right. like like Betts. Um, and I'm, you know, it's interesting to see that, you know, we like length in so many other sports, but having these sort of stumpy arms and legs are, is might be an advantage in baseball. Yeah. And I mean, we can talk about someone who's who's in the news today. Keston Hira is coming up for the Brewers and he's very much that body type. He's shorter, he's squat, but he's he's thick with two C's, right? He's not he's not doughy, but he is thick and he has that strength in his uh, in his legs and in his arms, but it's a really short swing. And we've seen what he's been able to do when they've put the major league baseball, this, this one with reduced drag down in triple a, I mean, his numbers are, are pretty laughable. Uh, first of all, he's in the PCL, but secondly, you put that ball in, in the Pacific coast league, which is, is a high octane hitting environment in the first place. And you're, he's got like a 670 slugging percentage. And I think he's like, only 40 or 50% better than the mm-hmm. average there, which is nuts. Yeah, and I remember one of the reasons I liked him coming out of UC Irvine is that it almost seems like you can scout for that now. That when you're looking at a college player or an amateur player, you know, you could see the guys who might be able to make that kind of adjustment because Hero was, I mean, he was a, a first-round pick despite not having played any defense his junior year because of injury. And like he just the hit tool was so good and you could see the other physical attributes that might one day allow him to turn into, you know, Albies or Altuve or, or you know, somebody with that kind of hitting profile. Yeah, and I mean I think there's an interesting disparity to make between Hira and someone like Nick Madrigal, right? And and Madrigal is kind of who prompted us to have this conversation that I quoted Jared Sadler from, uh, because he's He's a, an extreme contact hitter, but the question is whether he's going to have the power to play. And I think the ball can help him with that, but he's he's got at least a grade less power than we even gave Verdugo. And he's small uh, too. In our, right, exactly. And co- exactly. compare right. that to not the same body type. Yeah, and like I would always say about Altuve is he's five foot six, but he's built like Darren Sproles. And you know, right. Alex Bregman is that kind of body type, and, and Madrigal is skinny. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting, you know, it's, it's a different type of hit tool profile, but you look at the breakout of a guy like Yohan Mankata, who often said, like you said, Darren Sproles, like he's built like a running back. Now he's a bigger version of it, but again, and, and he doesn't have the same hit tool. He, he swings and misses a lot, but he's making more contact now. And all of a sudden he's having this monster breakout. Year. 
one other guy who I think you've brought up who didn't make this list because of plate appearance restrictions, but I think you've mentioned in the the same vein as Williams Asadio. I mean, nobody's got yeah. more contact skills than him, and he's got a an isolated power over two hundred right now too. Correct. He was on if I if I took out I had a minimum of a hundred plate appearances, which you know is 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 not that many, but Asadio has been hurt this year, so he he didn't quite get there. But he's absolutely on this list. I think he's also slugging over five hundred, and I think. Yeah, I mean, he's exactly the type of guy that we're talking about where it's this elite contact ability. And because uh, because the ball is different, I think it's allowing his power to play out at a different rate. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the trade-off between contact and power, but some of these guys are just living in this, this if basically they're, they're in the middle of a Venn diagram, right? Where they're able to not only... Uh, Maybe they give up a little contact for for a little power, but they're at such a high contact rate that it, it's actually accentuating all of it. Like it, it it forms together as some sort of Voltron type thing, where th- they're just so much better because of that that nexus of those two things, rather than trading one off for the other. It's an amplifier. It's an amplifier or something like that. All right, I'm I actually really enjoy a lot of these players, and I'm very excited for the golden age of the penguin shaped human being in Major League Baseball. <laughs> um, well, before before you go, I want to bring up one other Dodger player who's having yeah. a, um, a really incredible year, and that's Hyunjin Ryu, who has flown yeah. under the radar. Uh, it almost feels like a player like him shouldn't fly under the radar, but the Dodgers have just had so many big name players over the past few years that, uh, and Ryu struggled to to stay in the rotation. Um, but this year, he after a sub two ERA uh, in limited action last year, he has a one seventy two ERA now. Let's just look at his last three starts. He went into the eighth inning, uh, or sorry, he pitched at least eight, eight innings all three times out. And in 25 innings, he's allowed nine hits, one walk, and just one earned run, uh, including he took a, a no-hitter into, I believe, the eighth inning uh, his last time out. Um, this is like, I, I, I mean, like he's showing best pitcher in baseball upside almost after being a mid-rotation guy for most of his career. Yeah, I mean, I I threw out to one of our writers that I'd like to see something kind of from a scouting perspective on how he's doing this, how he is when healthy, one of the best pitchers in baseball, even though he's pretty much never healthy, uh, because I don't think his stuff would would normally put him into that zone. I think this year, you know, last year he was really good, a, a strikeout rate of 27.5%. He walked under 5% of the batters he faced, like you said, a sub-2 ERA uh, in 15 starts. This year he's, he's ticked up his uh, strikeout rate to over... 28% and he's walking under 2% of batters right now. I think Eric Steven had said that he hadn't walked a batter at home since the end of 2017. Again, some of that is missed time with, with injury, but it's still utterly remarkable. And yeah, he followed up a, a 93 pitch Maddox, you know, throwing a complete game under a hundred pitches uh, with a taking a no hitter into the eighth inning. As you said, I, he's been unbelievable. He's also one of the most interesting pitchers just in general. I think he, Famously, um, he, he wanted to change the grip on his curveball, and this was when Josh Beckett was on the Dodgers in 2016 or maybe 2017. Um, he he uh, he asked Beckett to show him uh, his curveball grip, and obviously Beckett's curveball was a, a major part of his career. And he just took it into a game and threw it for the first time. He showed him the grip. He I think he practiced a couple times, but it wasn't like he slowly worked it in into warm-ups and and threw it in bullpen sessions or anything like that. He just went and took it into a game and used it effectively. And he's just he's kind of a savant when it comes to pitching and the ability to do that type of thing. 
I think this year, obviously, he's cut down on the walks. He's in the zone constantly. He's also throwing a sinker uh, way more than he ever has before. I think it was about 5% of his pitches last year. Right now, it's about 15. And he's leaning on his changeup, which has been his bread and butter pitch kind of since he came over from Korea. Uh, and he's leaning on that a little bit more often. So I think it's pitch mix. It's also, he's just one of those guys where if, if you've read scouts or, or been able to be around scouts, people talk about feel and it's feel for pitches, feel for the game. He has elite feel, uh, both, both in his pitches and just like he's meant to be on the mound. And, and one last interesting nugget on Ryu. Uh, and I didn't know this until I was listening to the Dodgers broadcast and Joe Davis brought it up. But he was actually uh, born right-handed, but he's left-handed and does everything that he's doing. He's throwing lefty, but he's a natural righty. This is the the Billy Wagner, Michael Vick throw, throws lefty, does everything else righty. Yeah, and I think Wagner did it out of a uh, – he, he got hurt, right? Right. He, I think he broke his arm. It broke his right arm and started throwing lefty and then broke it again. I might be mixing up his story with Vick's story with uh, – Roy Campanella's story. Um, but it's some, some, but I, yeah, some injury. Yeah. Yeah. But Ryu, I guess his dad just said, you know, it's going to be easier if you're lefty. And so gave him, gave him a lefty glove and, and the rest is history, at least according to the, the broadcast. I was yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's insane. He's just, he's one of the most fun pitchers to watch without kind of the explosive stuff you're used to seeing. He's not Verlander. He's not Walker Bueller, right? Uh, but he is kind of more like Rich Hill in terms of just its feel for a few different pitches, and and he manipulates the ball in the zone constantly. It's, it's He's a ton of fun. So, I mean, you mentioned the walk rate of, what is 1.6%, 1.5% this year? Just to put yeah. that in context, we sort of glossed, glossed over that. Um, that's less than half the walk rate of the second best qualified starter right now. Um, and you, like you look at guys, you look at this last year, uh, the the walk rate leaderboard, even guys who you think of working within the zone and not really having overpowering stuff like Miles Michaelis or, or Shane Bieber um, having success like that. Stripling was up on that leaderboard last year. Um, and Ryu is doing that to a greater extreme and also, you know, striking guys out. It's, I mean, it, it, it's mind-boggling what he's doing right now. Yeah, I mean, the amazing part to me is obviously there are these guys, like you bring up Bieber or even in that same Cleveland system, Aaron Saval. I might be saying his name wrong, but uh, there's some of these guys that just never walk mm-hmm. anybody and they, and they don't have a history of it. But them missing bats at the level that he is uh, is often what's missing, right? If you're in the zone that much, hitters know and right. they can end up making And this contact. is the, the Phillies, ha- or Cal State Fullerton teaches, teaches yeah. this, like, just never throw anything out of the zone. And then the Phillies always end up with, they ended up with Connor Siebold and uh, Thomas Eshelman's the the best example of this. Um, it was Colton Eastman, I think was the other, the other guy they drafted. Um, and all those guys have trouble making the majors. Like, I mean, that was the scouting report on, on Bieber too. And he's managed to change his game a little bit. Yeah. It's pretty wild. So uh, Hyunjin Ryu, Alex Verdugo, the entire Los Angeles Dodgers are doing interesting stuff. There are a lot of reasons to watch people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Bellinger's, <laughs> I'll just say uh, what Bellinger's doing is maybe a little more obvious yeah. oh, than what, uh, you know, so uh, we've talked about him before. I'm sure we'll talk about him again, but thanks for uh, shining a light on some of the, the more subtle, interesting things that are going on in LA. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me on. 
Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates, and that place is ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-I-N-G-E-R-M-L-B. ZipRecruiter.com slash RingerMLB. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, so we were considering ending the show early, but then Ben Lindbergh jumped up and pulled it back, and we're going to do another 15, 20 minutes on uh, on home run robberies and a couple other topics. Ben, thanks for joining me. Yeah, I'm excited about our topics today. Yeah, well, you should be, because you just wrote a big article about the first one. <laughs> uh, this is home run robberies. Uh, my, I know this firsthand uh, because my fantasy team suffered just last night when George Springer robbed Nico Goodrum of a home run. You wrote extensively about home run robberies uh, and how commonplace they're becoming. So why? I guess. <laughs> well, first, sorry for your loss. I, I give you my condolences. Oh, before but, you start, I, I want to yeah. say like uh, we've uh, the the title of this article is "Watchers on the Wall Walking or Welcome <laughs> to the Golden Age of the Home Run Robbery." I think this, along with the um, the Vlad Guerrero Prince that was promised headline, I know. is uh, <laughs> I was talking have, to to my we editor. Have brain worms. Yeah. I know we really do. I didn't even come up with this one. My editor Justin Sales did, and I said, "For once, I'm not writing about Game of Thrones, and you still give me a Game of Thrones title." But we're really on brand at the Ringer. I don't know what we'll all do with ourselves next week, but yeah, we have all just reached peak home run robbery right now, and it sort of makes sense because we're at a record home run rate, and you would figure that the fact that would contribute to a high home run rate would also contribute to a high home run robbery rate. And that has been true historically. But we've seen 21 home run robberies this year, according to Sports Info Solutions. And that puts us on pace for 84, which would shatter the record, at least going back to 2004, of 65. And it could be small sample, except that that record was set last year. And the previous record was set the year before. And the couple of years before that were very high, too. And those just happened to be the extremely high supercharged home run ball era. And so it's part that it's partly that we're just seeing the ball carry farther. It's partly that hitters are, of course, aiming upward and we're seeing launch angle increase. So there are fewer grounders every year, which kind of counteracts the fact that there are just fewer balls in play in general because of the increasing strikeout rate. And then the other factor is that you have outfielders who are standing deeper and deeper every year, according to the StatCast data, which is probably because they have realized that the ball is carrying and guys are hitting in the air and no one hits singles anymore. So why even bother to prepare for a grounder through the infield? And so what you have is more balls in the air, more deep fly balls, and more outfielders who are standing at the ready and are capable of getting back to the wall in time to make a grab. 
And here I thought this was all just the result of Ramon Laureano playing every day for <laughs> Oakland. He's got two of them, but he is not the only one. This has been kind of a, a group effort. And I think it's really cool because this is, I think, the most exciting play in baseball. It's just a breathtaking play. You can endlessly watch a home run robbery highlight. Not everyone. Sometimes it's kind of like you stand under it and you just reach up and you're tall and the fence is short. Remember, didn't Aaron Judge have one of those? Yeah, he's had a couple of those. In the playoffs, yeah. Yeah, so, so not all of them are great, but when they are good, I think they're just the best highlight that baseball can generate. And we saw that last week with Jackie Bradley Jr. We saw it last week with Josh Reddick. And you can just go down the list and just think of all the famous ones, Andy Chavez or Dwayne Wise or Gary Matthews Jr., my all-time favorite. It's just the best. And I think it's getting better now because there are so many home runs. So we all just assume that every deep fly ball is going to be gone. And so it really subverts your expectations when at the very last instant, the outfielder brings it back. And there's this built-in drama because sometimes you don't even know if he caught it immediately. He'll fall down. You have to wait to see if it's in his glove or over the fence and no one knows. And you have to see replays to figure out what actually happened. I just think it's great. And it's nice and refreshing to actually be able to talk about something in baseball that is increasing that we all like, because Mm -hmm. this is kind of the opposite of every conversation we have about baseball now, where we're all just bemoaning, you know, increasing strikeout rates, longer games, slower pace, fewer balls in play, so many homers that the homer seems less special. And all that's true and maybe worth worrying about. But the silver lining is that we are getting more home run robberies. And we're now seeing one, say, every two days instead of sometimes going a week without one. I mean, in 2014, when there weren't many homers, there were 31 home run robberies all season, or 33, I think, and we're already at 21. So the rate has really picked up, but it's still rare enough to be special. Yeah, I want to go back to what you said, because this was what stuck out to me reading the the piece is that you called it the best play or the most fun play in baseball. And I that like struck me because I, you know, I have this is going to shock you considering how many things I have opinions on, but like an opinion on what the most fun play in baseball is. And that would be like any kind of, of long developing uh, close tag play, whether that's mm, a, like a pickle, a, not necessarily a pickle, but like the guy trying to score from first on a double or, you know, they uh-huh. say the triple is the most exciting play in baseball. Right. Uh, it could even be something like a, a six, four, three double play. Um, but that has the a similarity to the home run robbery where it takes a while to develop and there's drama and there's uncertainty. Yeah. But the way you you put it, like the expectations, setting up expectations and then subverting them, mm-hmm. I think is is a really good, really persuasive way to to put it. Cause I've, you know, I've found myself agreeing with you by the end of this that not only does it have the the drama and I don't know, I would say almost more athleticism because you think about the guys who do this, whether it's Laureano or Byron Buxton, uh, Mike Trout's had a couple. These are like, this is one of the few times that that you really see peak athleticism of a baseball player on display. And then all the, the narrative things that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was told by someone that very recently on CC Sabathia's podcast, Cameron Mabin said that robbing a home run is the most exciting play in baseball. And he would know because he's done it eight times, which ties him for the fourth most since his MLB debut, which maybe he's biased. He's not turning infield triple plays or, or something like that. but Or hitting I, many home runs. <laughs> that's, matter, but. that's true, too. But yeah, I think it's the combination of the expectations and then just the sheer athleticism that's on display when one of these goes really well. And I'm glad that I took a look in this article at like fence depth and fence height. 
And those haven't changed much recently, but in the past, you had much higher fences, you had much deeper fences, Mm -hmm. and the conditions just weren't right for home run robberies. But now everything is conspiring to give us more of these, and I welcome it. It's almost twice as common as it was just a, a few years ago, and I think that's a great development. Yeah, I've I've just got your your uh, leaderboard up here, and you mentioned like fence depth was or fence height rather was something that I thought about because I mentioned the the judge play, but like um, Josh Reddick and George Springer who both play a lot of right field at mid and made where the fence is like it's not literally waist high, but it's like yeah. a seven foot fence. That right field fence is short. Uh, Jackie Bradley and Mookie Betts playing with that short fence in right center and Fenway. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that was it Tory Hunter who went up and over. I don't remember, but uh, well, the Gary Matthews Jr. one is is the the famous one where he just jumped and twirled, and I don't know how he did that, but right, I, and that, but that was on like one of the that was on a fence in the like one of those eight to ten foot fences in like yeah. a like a nineteen seventies ballpark. I think what made that so incredible was the the extension that he got. Mm-hmm. Right. And Bradley sort of did that last week. And yeah, the, the most likely and common location for home run robberies is Camden Yards by a, a fair degree going back to the beginning of this data because they have seven feet fences almost all the way around to, except for right field, I think. And so that contributes to it. But really, you, you need a lot of things to break right. And we're just seeing a lot more balls in the sweet spot that lead to home run robberies. We're seeing outfielders prepare for them better than they ever have. And I just think it's nice to be talking about something that is getting more exciting in baseball organically. And sure, that's happening as a result of the supercharged baseball and all the home runs. They go hand in hand. But at least if we're lamenting all the other things, we can celebrate this one thing that we're getting more often. I agree entirely. Um, so let's celebrate something that's uh, not going so well. Yeah, um, a, t- a team that hits no home runs. You wanted to talk about, uh, I think the way you framed it was, are the t- 2019 Marlins worse than the 2018 Orioles? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's an open I question. I will admit to not having paid as much attention to the 2019 Marlins as I have to other teams. So uh, That is forgivable. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I really do hope that that's, uh, you know... <laughs> that our listeners won't hold that against me. But uh, you know, somebody mentioned their their best player having X, Y, and Z. And I was like, who is the Marlins' best player? I think it's uh, Neil this, Walker <laughs> right well, now. He's, he's their best hitter. I mean, <laughs> yeah, by I far. don't know if you who their uh um war leader is. I think Alfaro would have to be in that conversation when you consider position and defense. Uh Brian Anderson yeah. is leading the the Marlins huh. in in baseball reference war at 0.4. So <laughs> must be defense because like, he's not hitting. Yeah. What do we I mean <laughs> that's that's a level like that's a rounding that's a, a rounding error below or like above uh above replacement level. Yeah. I mean teams like last year's Orioles don't come around that often. Maybe they come around more often in this era <laughs> where you see great teams and terrible teams, but I wasn't expecting anyone to challenge them so soon. But I think the Marlins are really going to make a run at it because they're in this division where you have, at least in theory, four good teams who are competing and beating up on each other and beating up on the Marlins. And then you have the Marlins who currently aren't trying to win in the short term. And so right now they are playing at a 42 win full season pace. The Orioles ended up with 47 last year. You have to round up to get the Marlins to to 42, by the way. And it's not that they've been unlucky, really, because their run differential, I think, actually says they should be this a is game what worse I wanted to talk about. Yeah. than they've been. So, I mean, and last year's Orioles uh, underperformed their run. You would expect 
they, they would un- underperform something if they, right. like like nobody is bad enough to just be a true talent 47 win team they underperform their run differential by eight eight games uh anyway mm-hmm. um having said that however the uh the marlins have the run differential of a team with a 230 winning percentage which over the course of a 162 game season he says waiting for the calculator is a 37.4 win team right yeah so the bright spot or the the non-depressing spot is the starting rotation which is a credible rotation it's decent you've got guys like caleb smith and pablo lopez and jose reina it's a pretty decent rotation but beyond that it's a complete disaster so the bullpen is arguably the worst in baseball this year it's the worst by fangraphs war it's the worst by park adjusted fip i think their closer is sergio romo right now who has like a six era they they have essentially one reliever who's pitched well this year and then the real problem the even bigger problem tehran guerrero yeah the offense currently is or would be the worst offense of all time. So if you search just uh, at Fangraphs, you go to the modern era, 1901 to present, and you search by WRC+. plus. So 100 is average, lower is worse, higher is better. The Marlins currently have a 65 WRC+, plus, which would be the worst any team has ever had over a full season. They're hitting 219, 283, 310 as a team with 24 homers, which is also the worst in baseball. And of course, this is a a pretty high offense era and obviously a high home run era, but it is not in Miami. They just cannot hit at all. And I don't know that they're going to. (laughs) You look down the lineup and yeah, there will be guys who will be better almost by default, I suppose. But it's just... There are are guys in that lineup who... uh, have hit well in the recent past, but not yeah. so well that I would guarantee they're going to hit once again. Guys like Starlin Castro and Curtis Granderson, Martin Prado. Right. Yeah. I mean, those guys will be better, I guess, but it's not going to be good. It's not going to be much better. And if anything, they may trade guys like Castro or Granderson if they do bounce back. And so maybe the lineup will be even more depleted in the second half. Brinson, of course, was uh, really off to a terrible start again and and has been sent down. So, I mean, you can kind of look at this Marlins team and squint and see prospects and a farm system and a future. Although I know that Marlins fans, such as they are, have been squinting to see that future for decades now. And that's just kind of the perpetual state of Marlins fandom. But right now, it is really rough to watch this Marlins team. And I don't know. I I think the NL East gives us a bit of everything. It gives us good teams and a great close race. Mm -hmm. And then it gives us perhaps one of the worst teams of all time, which is fun to follow from afar in its own way if you're not rooting for that terrible team. Marlins non-pitchers have a 608 a 608 collective OPS. Uh, Zach Granke for his career has a 594 OPS. Oh, that's a sad stat. Yeah, and that's not like I know he's been red hot this season. Yeah. Um, he somehow has five extra base hits already, <laughs> um, but that's for his entire career. That those are his his offensive numbers. Yeah, it's gonna um, get ugly. It's been ugly. Yeah, it's not gonna get much less ugly from here on out. So, I feel like I I must have asked you this before. We might have uh, when we were talking about the Royals and the Orioles last year. If a team goes forty one and one, so the the all time record for worst record in baseball is. Uh, the 1962 Mets who went 40, 40 and 160 and just didn't play the last two games of the season. Um, if a team goes 41 and 121, is that the worst record of all time in your estimation? Huh. I 
think so. I'd say so. I mean, especially if you don't have the excuse of being an expansion team, that I think would make it even worse by comparison. I mean, obviously, like the league as a whole is getting better and more competitive all the time. So it's somewhat more excusable to be terrible relative to the league in 2019 than it was in 1962. At the same time, the talent pool is so big. Like what's your, if the, you know, if the 1962 Mets could manage to, to put together a better, better, more competitive team with like 1962 level uh, scouting, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that, that would almost be a bigger indictment to me. Yeah. Well, there have been negative stories about the Marlins front office, too, and uh, about losing their AAA affiliate and not liking dogs. And so there's behind-the-scenes drama going on here, and there's just off-the-field – well, I, dysfunction is too charitable a word for what's happening on the field right now. So they're going to give the 62 Mets a run for their money, I think. Hey, uh, so you brought this up when we were talking before the show. Uh, one reason that we're comparing them to last year's Orioles and not this year's Orioles is uh, the Chris Davisons. Yes. Uh, which, like, wow. You know, he <laughs> talked about or he uh, he went, what, like the first 11 games of the season without a hit. And we brought up his numbers since the, the first game he got a hit, he's hitting 293, 71, 581 over his past 21 games, which is like not just bouncing back from being the worst player in baseball. That's good by anybody's standards. Yeah, it's incredible. Kyburn has taken the corpse of Chris Davis and made him bigger and better than before. I, I don't know how this is happening, but of course, he set the all-time record, right? 0 for 54 for a, a position player. And if you look at the players he passed on that list, like Craig Council had an 0 for 45 and a Eugenio Velez had the record before Davis 0 for 46. And both of those guys were like at the end when that happened, as you would think, like you don't really bounce back from this kind of thing. So Council had 40 more at bats after that streak ended by the end of his career. And then Velez, his streak is still active. <laughs> he never got that hit. His career ended. So you wouldn't have expected Davis to bounce back, but man, he really has. So since the first day he got his hit and he got three hits all at once on that day. So that was April 13th. He has a 154 WRC plus since then. That is the 38th best in baseball, which doesn't sound so impressive, but for him to be closer to best than worst is in itself impressive. I think this is over an equivalent stretch of games. This is the best he's hit since early 2017. So he's bounced back to like genuinely good Chris Davis. And it's not like he's just prioritizing getting hits and he's just trying to make contact, although he is making some more contact, but he's hit for power too. He's hit five homers. He's slugged 581, as you said. So it's not like he's changed his approach in that sense, just to avoid embarrassment. He's been legitimately good. And, and he had been hitting the ball kind of hard before he snapped the streak. So he was running into some bad luck there. And yeah, he's been a little lucky during this streak. I mean, if anyone deserves to be lucky, it's Chris Davis, I think. Uh -huh. So it's not like he's back to being great again, let's say, but he's back to being a, a genuinely- oh, He's back a, to being great for three weeks. Yeah, like. he is, which is more than anyone possibly could have expected. So- there's hope for the Marlins, I guess, if if Chris Davis can bounce back to, I mean, this is Chris Davis since he snapped that streak 
has hit better on a per plate appearance basis than he did the last time he led the league in homers. So he's been like close to peak Chris Davis again. And sure, maybe it, it won't last, but for it to last this long, no one would have seen that coming. And it's kind of gone from a really depressing story. Like he didn't outwardly seem to let it get to him too much. And the, the fans weren't too tough on him. They were kind of behind him rooting for him to snap yeah, the streak. I mean, so. I almost, that I, I could see that like that pity being not worse than just being jeered every time up, but yeah, uh, being depressing in its own way. And right. I mean, there was that, that sports illustrated story from the end of last year. That was just one of the saddest pieces of baseball writing that not sad. And like the writing was good, but <laughs> the, the story, the content was, was very, very sad. And I remember you um, saying, because you wrote about Davis earlier this year and you said that you, I don't know if you regretted it, but you said it just sort of depressed you to write about it. <laughs> you thought yeah, it, like, it, well, <laughs> him and Trevor Rosenthal doing this, right. like, when you just look at the numbers, you're at first blush, you're like, well, this is hilarious. And then you think about like, I don't know, like that level of consistent professional failure on that, <laughs> that, uh, uh, biggest stage. Like I know it's Orioles game, so not that many people are watching, but yeah. still it's gotta be a huge bummer. And so I, I came away from that. Yeah. Feeling a little guilty for finding it, it funny at first. Right. Cause when you think about it for more than a second, it's just, you know, you wouldn't wish that on anybody. Yeah, I didn't want to watch and I was relieved when it ended. And now it's almost an inspirational story. I mean, if Chris Davis can bounce back from that, we can bounce back from anything. So he went from not being able to hit to being really good. So your move, Marlins, I guess, and <laughs> see if you can do it too. Oh boy. Um, I will say I just took another look at the Marlins roster and there, I don't think there's anybody on that roster who even at, at their peak was as good as, as a prime Chris Davis. Yeah. Maybe, you know, 07 Curtis Granderson. Um, maybe they should trade for him, pick up Chris Davis. That'll that's, put some butts uh, in the seats. Yeah, maybe. We were talking, oh, this was what I was going to say. Um, when I was writing my Chris Paddock thing over the weekend, um, it uh, hinged a lot on like the idea of the tradition of the great uh, – Texas power pitcher. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like, and you know, part of the reason we, we wrote this now was, uh, um, Paddock is facing off against Clayton Kershaw, of course, you know, another great, uh, Texan power pitcher uh, tonight at Dodger stadium. And so I, I looked at like the best, best pitchers from Texas and came up with among active pitchers born in Texas. Uh, Chris Davis has the fifth best career ERA plus <laughs> He's one spot at one spot ahead of Clayton Kershaw, minimum one inning pitch. <laughs> Chris Davis does it all. So, I mean this, but that's how bad it was. Like people were thinking like, you know, do you just give him a shot as a, as a middle reliever just to try to get something out of him for yeah. the last few years of his contract? So. Yeah. Well, better days have arrived. Anyway, yeah, I'm. I couldn't be happier that that Chris Davis is uh, put it all back together mm -hmm. at least for for a few weeks. So, I mean, if nothing else, he's not going to be as bad as he was uh, last year. No, so uh, right, <laughs> he's probably just three weeks of being good is probably enough to clear that very low bar. Yeah. All right. Well, the worst is over, uh, and so is the podcast. So, uh, thanks for for joining me, Ben. This has been it's been good to celebrate something, you know, like yeah. you said. It has. All right. Talk to you next time. That'll do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks to Zach and Ben, as always, for joining me. Thanks also to our special guest, Craig Goldstein, whose work you can find at Baseball Prospectus and whose takes you can find on Twitter at CD Goldstein. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Madison Bumgarner, Alex Verdugo, and Chris Davis for providing content for today's show. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. 
Support for today's show comes from Smile Direct Club. Smile Direct Club straightens your teeth for 60% less in braces with invisible aligners sent directly to you. And exclusive for our listeners, you can get $100 off your invisible aligners when you go to smiledirectclub.com slash podcast and use offer code MLB100. You'll also get a $25 Amazon gift card with a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or a $25 rebate on an at-home impression kit. That's smiledirectclub.com slash podcast, offer code MLB100. 